Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This episode is recorded on Thursday, February 14th, 2019, starting at 6.48 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 193rd episode of the show. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Vedic astrologer Freedom Cole about the Vimshodari Dasha system and its use in Indian astrology. For more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and help support the production of future episodes by becoming a patron, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. Uh, hey, Freedom, thanks for joining me today. Uh, thanks for having me here, Chris. Yeah, I'm really uh, excited about this. So part of the genesis of this episode is I just got do- got done doing an episode 192, an introduction to a, a lost ancient Western uh, time lord system or a timing technique that divides the life up into chapters and subsections. And for many of the Western astrologers, this is a brand new concept. But one of the things I tried to mention briefly in that episode but couldn't go into is that that approach to timing of having these broad techniques that divide the entire life, that's actually a very common concept that's still regularly used in Indian astrology. And that's what the dashas are, right? Standard. Standard. Okay. So that's why I wanted to have you on. We're going to talk about one of the most common dasha techniques that's used in Indian astrology by most Indian astrologers today. Um, But first, since this is your first time on the show, I thought maybe we should introduce you and talk a little bit about your background. Um, I met you at UAC, I think, in the first th- the first time in 2012. And yes. um, but more recently, my good friend Austin Kopic and friend of the show has been taking some of your classes and just really raving about them. And he really loves your book and your your teachings. Um, yes, uh, I teach uh, a, a two one year long classes and then a, a five year long uh, class. Um, and I've uh, been teaching since 2006 now. Okay. When did you, how um, long have you been studying astrology in general? Uh, I started studying astrology in 98 and fumbled around with a handful of teachers for a while. And uh, at the same time, I was studying Ayurvedic medicine, Indian herbal medicine. And uh, I was in India going in exploring, looking for different teachers. And uh, it was in 2000 that I met my teacher and uh, found the traditional lineage to study with. Brilliant. So you found a specific um, guru and a specific lineage that you, you really wanted to to master in terms of the, the teachings and the transmissions primarily from, from his school? Yeah. Well, before meeting him, I had read everything available in English. And so when I talked to other astrologers, literally I could quote where that material came from that they were discussing. And when I met my teacher, it was like, you know, so before I was somebody very wise to, to astrology. And then when I met him, I was a preschooler. And right. uh, <laughs> it was a yeah. world of of difference. So, I was talking to James Braha recently, and he said there's a huge difference between the sort of like academic book learning approach to astrology versus the sort of wisdom that you get from an experienced teacher that's been doing this for a while and like actually applying the techniques in practice. And uh, not just somebody who's been doing it for a while, but somebody who's from a family of astrologers who was trained by their uncle who who was also trained by their grandfather and just a family tradition and 
So when my guru talks, like we'll have a verse and sometimes we'll take a verse from a text and we'll talk about it for two days from like eight in the morning till five in the evening, you know, one verse digging that deep into so-and-so's opinion and this text's opinion. And this is how this tradition is using it. And uncle used to use it like this and grandfather used to say this, but I'm using it like this. So, you know, this one verse and, and it's not a simple, this is how it is, but it's this whole exploration of everybody's opinion and how it's using and how it works. And, and cause sometimes you can use something in more than one way, but you're just going to get different results for that more than one way of using it. Right. Yeah. I mean, that whole idea of, of lineage is so much different um, in the Indian tradition where you can have that transmission from actual like generations of astrologers versus just one person, you know, so often in the West, just like learning it out of nowhere and not having any connection to even the prior generation that learned it, but instead just picking it up from books. That's a much different approach having that available. Exactly. So yeah. when when I when I found that. I, I've surrendered to it and just continue to go deeper. Brilliant. Well, and eventually you published your first books. You've published two books so far, mm-hmm. uh, but the title is Science of Light: An Introduction to Vedic Astrology, Volumes One and Two. Uh, so which I've the been... f- the first one is an introduction. The second one is a foundation. Okay, and, and slight difference, but there's a, a idea, you know, a theoretical difference between because one's just the intro. It's welcome to the terms. The second one is um, what is the underlying philosophy of astrology that makes it work, and mm-hmm. how did the ancient world believe that it worked? Right. And so the whole first part of volume two goes into that, and the second part of volume two goes into advanced techniques utilizing all those concepts. Okay, brilliant. And are you still working on other volumes, or is it going to remain a two-volume set? Uh, the, there's there's a third volume that will eventually come out as part of that series, but mm. I'm working on a few other texts at the moment, so we'll see what evolves when. Okay. Um, the the interest the uh, second chapter in volume two though it's the whole chapter is just focused on time, and the ancient concept of time. And, uh, and I go deep into that because when we talk about timing, um, it's such a different concept of time than us as Americans utilize. We have this thing where there's people who say, oh, time doesn't exist, or I don't believe in time, or time's only real if you believe in it. And the, the Indian reply to that is like, yeah, we'll see what, we'll see how old you look in 20 years. You know, it's right. It doesn't matter whether you believe in it or not believe in it. Time is happening. Sure. And uh, so instead of calling it an illusion or not real, it's kind of the opposite. The only thing, like there's there's nothing that's permanent. Nothing is permanent. Everything is going to go away. Our only guarantee is that everything is going to go away. And so in that, our only consistent reality is the fact that time is moving forward. There's nothing else that we can you know, be sure of, but we can definitely be sure that time is moving forward and it's not moving any other way. And in that time is considered a divinity that is manifesting reality. So when we take that concept of time manifesting reality, 
then timing in an astrological chart enters this whole different plane of existence because the planets themselves are deities. You know, the planets are the, the gods, both in the Vedic system and, you know, in, in many of the other systems. Mm. And those gods are manifesting through the movement of, of time and, and giving you the results of your time. And uh, if we look, the, the English language, you, you, I don't know how much you know about how much language impacts just how we frame reality. But sure. English is a very noun-based language. Mm-hmm. So, thing, so there's things. And things have places. So those who are speakers of the English language, they, we have this tendency to think in thing and place. That's just our go-to. Right. When you enter Sanskrit, it's a verbal language and everything is about a verb. Even, even a book is, is a place where words are, are, are being, you know, they're like, there's a communication happening. So everything is, every noun is just a verb that's been densified into a noun, but its root is a verb. And in that realm of happenings, there's a much more, um, there's the, fourth dimension of time is is inherent in the verb that's not inherent in the noun Hmm. Uh, and that's the other thing so timing in a chart it it allows the chart to uh as and the chart and our relationship to the chart to be a fourth dimensional the the chart is a four-dimensional reality there's the the planets and then those planets are expanding in time. They're, they're giving fruit in time. So when we use timing techniques in a chart, we are in, we are, we're taking this uh, two dimensional thing and we're turning it into a four dimensional reality of unfolding a person's life. So it's a very different concept than saying that time isn't real. <laughs> right, definitely. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and that brings up two points. One of which I love about your book is that you, no Sanskrit, and you actually translated a bunch of passages from Parashara, from one of the oldest uh, Indian astrological texts for this book. So then when you cite and when you're teaching specific things about dashas or other techniques, you're actually citing and translating the passages directly from that ancient text. Yes. Okay. Um, that's just really brilliant and unique because you don't see that in, in a lot of astrological texts, um, especially in the West until recently when people started actually translating some of these, but they usually don't know the language firsthand. So that gives you a really unique direct insight into some of the authors and some of the texts. Um, but anyway, looping back to the point you were making about timings. So yes. we're going to talk about timing today. Um, and part of the premise of this, it seems like, is as you were saying, the birth chart indicates various things but it's kind of like a, a like a snapshot in time of the alignment of the planets at the moment of your birth but the dashas and other timing techniques introduce a more dynamic component as you were saying about the unfolding of things throughout a person's life as they move forward in time yes fourth fourth dimension uh, you know time is is this unfolding and uh, the chart itself, uh, the Sanskrit word for the chart, if we personify the zodiac, mm-hmm. it's called the Kala Purusha, meaning time personified. Mm. That is the zodiac. The zodiac is time. And uh, 
Yeah. So um, uh, let's see. So um, and and with that that time, we in 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 the present moment is contained the past and the future. And so when we take that picture of the sky at the moment we're born, that is giving this whole picture of what brought everything into being at that moment and what will come of that. Mm. Um, both if we just look externally at the sky, whenever we look at where any of the planets are, we know where they were before and where they're going. And in the same way, when we take that snapshot of, of the astrological chart, it's, it's, it's taking on a, you know, instead of just the linear dimension, we're opening it up to an, another direction and we're expanding our own life and karmas and uh, the desire of the gods uh, into um, the dimension of time and the unfolding of our life. Right. You, you actually had a statement at the beginning of your, the section on timing in your chapter that I really liked yeah, where yeah. it sounded really similar to this statement. I remember um, reading in like the 12th century text of Guido Bonatti, but it was interesting how you phrased it where it was something to the effect that the purpose of astrology was to understand the past, to correctly perceive the present, and to predict the future. Uh, and I thought that was a great encapsulation of something mm. that's seems true in most traditions of astrology in terms of what their primary goal is. Uh, Trikalagyana is is the Sanskrit word for that. It's the the one of the goals of the astrologer is to become the knower of the three times, the past, the present, and the future. Mm. Right, that's brilliant. I love that. There's like a <laughs> that goes that's so common and that runs through so many different traditions, and it's so. It seems like it should be so obvious once somebody points it out to you, but that's not usually commonly how astrologers talk about it. They usually talk more about like something else that's not as as primary or fundamental as that. From the Indian perspective, time is the fundamental. Every other element is evolving from time. Mm. So, and that brings in the the dashas. So, the dashas are a collection of techniques. Or how should we define this actually? Because I <sighs> usually use the yeah. term dasha to mean like a specific set of techniques that work in a mm -hmm. certain sort of way. But when we were talking the other day, it seemed like you might have a a broader usage of that term. So, the word dasha itself literally means ten. Ten. Okay. That that's literally mm -hmm. what it means, and it's it's bringing up this concept of of compartments. You know, 10, 20, 30, 40. Mm. And just, you know, we have 10 fingers and, and everything is evolving after that number 10. So it's, it's a, a way of encapsulating time. And, uh, the big thing when we talk about encapsulating time is we just, just as I was putting all this emphasis on how real time is, uh, in that same way, just as we go to a place and I can explain, Hey, over in you know in Denver, there's mountains and there's snow on them, and and you can and I can explain what Denver looks like. And over here in California, we can explain what California looks like. Time is also qualitative, and it has qualities to it. And so different there there's different nature to time. And when we mm -hmm. look at Dasha, it's this encapsulation of these different qualitative time periods where the time will be a different energy than a different time. And mm, right. everybody, it's, it's, I often bring it up, you know, we've had good times of our life. We've had bad times of our life. We have times that, that we've loved a lot 
times where everything is working well, times where nothing can work out. And so, you know, when we reflect on it, everybody can, can connect into this experience of, yeah, there's good times and there's bad times, and then there's neutral times. And when we look at dashas, there's multiple dashas because sometimes everything is bad, but sometimes it's just relationship that's bad and money's good. And sometimes right. it's just um, health is bad, but career is okay. And so there's these multiple dashas that are kind of giving you the time quality of these different areas of your life, similar to how different houses are representing different areas of your life. These different dashas are are representing these different qualities of, of time in these different areas. Yeah, I love that because it's talking. That's also interesting to conceptualize it that there's different ways of dividing time, and mm. we'll sort of get into that in terms of different dasha techniques that divide time in different ways, and and that each of those attributes certain qualities to different eras of time. But one of the things that's different and and requires almost a reorientation for a Western astrologer is they're often used to thinking of time in terms of specific discrete events, but this is instead dividing time up into almost like blocks of time that have duration for for a while rather than just thinking about it as as a singularity or something and and we would never think about space as a singularity you know we would right. never say oh it, it we we wouldn't we don't look at the the earth as a bunch of islands mm-hmm. and so there's and but there is continents so there's these different blocks of land masses that have different natures and qualities and there is the division between them, but there's uh, a coherence in in the qualitative nature of time. Right. Um, so our topic today is the Vimshotri, and uh, when we look at the Vimshotri, uh, the Vimshotri is a type of dasha that uh, relates to the moon, and so the moon is about the uh, qualitative nature of how we are experiencing reality. Which, um, if we take the, the big scene of the dashas, there's a division into three different, um, primary dashas, dasha types. And we have ayur dashas, which are about longevity and health. And there was, in the ancient world, there was, there was astrologers who that was the only thing they did. You came to them and they, they'd tell you when you'd be sick and when you were going to die. And th- there was a name for that type of, of astrologer. And, uh, and then there's, um, the, uh, Rashi dashas, which are more about what's happening qualitatively outside of us. And then there's the Udu dashas that are more about what's happening in our experience of reality. Mm. And so the Vimshotri is, uh, it's, it's the most, um, uh, it's the most popular, most common, and most uh, commonly used because they call it a universal dasha. It's one that can kind of give you a little bit of all of those dashas, even though it's primarily based on experience. You can get some stuff about health out of it. You can get some stuff about the environment out of it, and uh, and uh, so so it's it's gained popularity beyond all the other dasha systems. Sure, it seems like the one dasha system that just about everybody who practices Vedic astrology is familiar with and has used on some basic level and and many people that seems to be like they're maybe I'm going too far but I want to say a lot yeah. of the 
Western practitioners, it seemed like yes, they often that, use. Good, yeah, that yeah. that might be a good distinction it's, to make. In in the West, it is the number one. Okay. Yeah, for Western Vedic astrologers, it's the number one dasha. Uh, I remember the first time I was traveling in Nepal, and you know, over there, you tell somebody you're an astrologer, and they'll pull out of their pocket their horoscope and say, "Look, <laughs> what what do you see happening right now?" And and, and people keep it in their wallet. It's like that common. In, okay. I mean, I've been on train rides in India and um, the judge, like the, the Supreme Court judge of the state is in the cabin with me. And I mentioned I'm an astrologer and he pulls out his chart from his wallet. And he says, I'm thinking of running for, you know, um, basically what would be like governor in, in our country. Uh, what do you think? And I'd sit there and I'd mm. say, ah, I don't think this is the right year. Next year is going to be a better time for you. And he's like, okay. <laughs> you know, like that's, that's the level. But, um, you know, you go to some of these places like Nepal, Vimshotri Dasha is not the number one Dasha. They have a Dasha called Yogini Dasha, which mm. is a uh, very, very different type of Dasha. And so different areas lean more towards one than another. If we go to South India, South India is leans more heavily into um, sign-based dashas. Like they'll mm. tell you it's a Taurus time period or a Gemini time period. Where Vimshotri is a planet uh, dasha. It's telling you it's a Saturn time period or a Venus time period. So, okay. um, but the Vimshotri is number one in the West. And on a certain level until about maybe uh, 12 years ago, um, I would even say until about 20 years ago, um, there was only one or two astrologers that I knew who were using anything other than, and they were considered weirdos okay. uh, for using something different. But it's becoming more popular to to know more than one timing, uh, more than one dasha. Sure. And uh, this technique specifically, in terms of how far back we can trace it, it seems to go back at least to the text of Parashara, which is at least at the latest, the 8th century or, or earlier? Around that time period. And okay. so when, when we look at, at Parashara, uh, it's, it's being dated till around the 8th century because of the language. Um, we can see that the techniques in it are much later, but when it was the Brahat Parashara Horashastra was written somewhere around the 8th century. So that's the way that... Um, me balancing the realm of myth and the realm of modern scholarly, um, a, you know, uh, approach to it. I balance that it was written sometime around the eighth century. How old it is, is, is another debate. Um, but that's the oldest text that I've seen it, uh, arise in. When we look at Varaha Mahira, he's using, um, a system called, uh, Muladasha and Nisargika Dasha. And Nisargika Dasha is, it's a biological timing where, you know, from zero to one, you're an infant. You're just a baby. From, uh, as soon as you start walking from one to three, it's, you're, you're a toddler and there's certain energy at that time. So it's the same for everybody. At 13, mm -hmm. um, you hit puberty and then you, you change timing. Um, uh, then he also uses this Dasha called Muladasha. We call it Muladasha. Um, he doesn't give a name for it, but basically you take the strongest uh, Kendra and you use, that's the first Dasha, then the next strongest and you go through them. Then you take the Cadent and the houses, and then you do the strongest Cadence. And each one of those is giving a different timing. 
Um, yeah. and, but in Parashara, we see, uh, and as I said, it's my, what I, my understanding, it's the first time it shows up. And in the texts in the Varahamihira tradition, we see it also being incorporated around the uh, 10th century into to their usage. Okay, so in later authors who fo- followed sort of Varahamira's approach They're later started into in, in, mixing them together in the later traditions. Yes. I got it. And it, and in Prashra, that's not even the only Dasha system, right? There's there's other Dashas no, no, introduced. No. Yeah, he 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 does 32 he lists 32 different Dashas. Okay. And in those Dashas, like just for example, one of them uh one of those 32, it can be started from the Lugna the Lugna Lord or the highest degree planet. So mm. all of a sudden that one Dasha just became three different Dashas. Right. And the the and we differentiate it. The one that's um coming from the, the Lugna Lord, uh the Ascendant Lord, um <laughs> I'll speak no in problem. English terms. It's, um that one is used to see the unfoldment of the person's what their purpose is in life. Where the one that is from the highest degree planet, that's looking at the soul purpose. You know, what has the soul come for and why, it, you know, uh, different spiritual experiences and, and soul development. So all these different timings have a utilization in some area of our life. Sure, I like that. So it's like using different dashas or different timing techniques for different purposes or different contexts to study some of them are highly specialized to do specific things whereas others like one of the reasons we'll talk about him Shodri is that it's, it's more more general it's more general exactly okay brilliant all right well why don't we jump into it then at this point and just talk a little bit about how to calculate it and how it's calculated to give people an idea uh, as well as some resources for where they can get their their dashas calculated and then after that we'll jump into interpretation um yeah so uh and and how much to differentiate or not differentiate um the uh um when we talk about calculation so uh, vimshotri literally means the 120 year cycle and there's also a 108 year cycle there's a 100 year cycle there's a 60 year cycle if for and and the 60 year cycle is only used on a chart that has the sun and the rising sign if you don't have the sun and the rising sign you don't use the 60 year cycle so there's this concept of what's special about a person that has the sun and the rising sign that we'd only use that. Um, but I, I just bring up that difference uh, because um, so each of the nakshatras is given uh, a, a length of time and it's given a planet correlation. And sometimes a lot of Western, uh, for lack of a better term, neo-Vedic astrologers uh, they use that planet Lord of the nakshatra to interpret the nakshatra. But the thing mm. is that the planet connected to the nakshatra is only connected to the Vimshotri dasha. If I used the hundred year dasha, I actually correlate a different planet to the nakshatra. So there's okay. this variation. So the, the planet connected to the nakshatra is not a standard. It changes depending on the dasha. Um, okay, but, but but for the purpose of this technique, so the, we have the the yeah. twenty seven yeah. lunar mansions, which are the nakshatras, and they're they're basically uh, thirteen degrees and twenty minutes in yeah. length each, yeah. and each of those for the purpose of this technique is associated with a specific planet, with one planet, and each planet has a number of years that it gives, 
And okay. the planets, and so there's nine planets used in the Vedic system, uh, the standard seven plus Rahu and Ketu. And the, the north north node and south node. Exactly. Okay. And they are repeated three times throughout the nakshatras. So it's nine times three. And uh, it starts in the beginning of the first fire sign, moves all the way through, and then again starts at the next fire sign. So there's these this sequence of, of uh, nine three times. Did you follow that? Yeah. yeah, and and I have and a diagram a friend made for me years ago. Could I share it? To t- can you tell me if sure. this is uh, correct? All right, so um, I will just share that really quick for those watching the video version. Um, so it's supposed to be a diagram that shows the nakshatras and then the names of them on the outside and then the planet associated with it, if this is correct. Um, s- yes, and and notice that the nakshatras are breaking in random places compared to the sun. So we can call the nakshatras moon signs. Right. And they're breaking in random places compared to the sun signs, except in three places. In between Pisces and Aries, they're in an alignment. In between um, Leo and Cancer, they're in alignment. And in between uh, Scorpio and Sag, they're in alignment. So those are the three places where the this nakshatra sequence starts again. And because of this, this break between both the moon sign and the sun sign, those are considered dangerous degrees in the Vedic system. Mm. Because you're, you're, both on, you're both in transition between the moon sign and the sun sign. Where if we look between the first nakshatra and the second nakshatra, they're, they're changing, but they're still in the same sun sign. And if we move from Aries to Taurus, you're moving sun sign, but you're still in the same moon sign. So it's they're considered safer um, transition points where these major points uh, where both are, are changing uh, are considered more dangerous. And it's where there's this restart happening. So, um, so if we look here, um, the, uh, so, so each of these nakshatras is given a different number of years. And, sure. uh, and if we look at the second nakshatra in um, uh, Aries, this is called Barani. And so Barani is ruled by Venus and it's given 20 years. If we look at the next one, it's ruled by the sun and that's given six years. We look at the next one, it's ruled by the moon, which is given 10 years. So each of these is allotted a certain number of years. What we do is we look at where the moon is at the moment of birth. And if the moon was, and just for ease of calculation, we say it was exactly halfway through um, a nakshatra ruled by Venus. So if it was um, uh, halfway through the Barney, which is the second nakshatra in Aries, that would mean if, if Barney gives 20 years, if it's halfway through, that means the person is already past 10 years and their life will begin with the first 10 years being in Venus. And once that first 10 years of Venus is done, they enter the sun time period and they have six years of that sun. And so all of us were born with the moon somewhere. And it's very rare to be born with the moon right on a transition point, but some people are. And if it's born right in that transition, they'll have the full timing of that first sequence. Otherwise, we have, we're using a remainder and then we start utilizing each of these time periods after. Now, one of the things that um, 
I, I was studying the Ayurveda and yoga, and I had a friend who was studying um, the Jyotish, and he kept trying to get me into it. And I, I was just, I just wasn't taking, you know, I wasn't, I was like, ah, astrology, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't put, right. I'm like, I'm, I'm doing this, this Ayurveda and, and this is, this is grounded and real. And, and then, um, a re- reluctant, I always like the archetype of like the reluctant astrologer I, I run into <laughs> from time to time. Yeah. I was, I was, I was too logical and, right. um, and I was, uh, 19 turning 20 at that point. And, uh, and I had played around a little bit with astrology, but it just didn't have the, the, I just didn't feel the validity or I don't know what it just not enough. It didn't call me to study. And, mm. uh, at that time I had been in my Venus, uh, time period for my first year of college. And my first year of college, I went to school for art and I was a design major. And then the next year I just had some strange feeling and I was like, ah, I'm going to change schools and I changed schools and and I I transferred to be a psych major. And I I didn't really know why I just was listening to my heart and and it didn't make sense otherwise. And later he he pulled out these Vimshotri Dasha and he showed that I changed from Venus and went into sun. And I was like, mm. "Oh, of course. I was in design and then I went to school for psychology instead." It, it was like, all of a sudden it made sense. I started looking a little deeper. Everything else started lining up. It was like, wow. And, and that, that kind of, um, I, uh, I've unfortunately, I've fortunately or unfortunately, I, my life has been devoted to astrology since. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, um, just bringing it back around to the, the yes. calculation thing. Yes, the so calculation. So the, so the yeah. simple thing is just that um, in order to calculate this this technique, this dasha technique, yeah. you just find out what degree and what sign your sun is located in in moon. the sidereal. Moon. Or sorry, not the moon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not the sun, the moon in the sidereal zodiac, and you figure yeah. out what nakshatra it's in. Yeah. Whatever nakshatra it is in is associated with a specific planet that has a certain number of years. Exactly. And um, but you don't use the complete years of whatever that is because it's proportional based on how far through that nakshatra the moon is at the moment of your birth. Yes. So if it's like halfway through, then you would use half of the years of half that, that half birth. that of that Brilliant. planet. And so once that number of years is up for that first chapter of your life, you then move to the next nakshatra in zodiacal order. Exactly. And so you're just okay. zodiacally going through um, the nakshatras. And normally you'll stay in uh, a cer- the certain zone that you were, uh, you're not going all the way around the zodiac because it's from one of those uh, major transition points to the next is 120 years. And so oh, wow. you're, okay. you're, so you're only going um, maximum a, a third of the way around the zodiac with the Vimshotri system. Okay, and, brilliant. Uh, During a course then, of like a 120-year life, basically. Exactly. And there's there's one story of a certain saint who lived more than 120 years, and he was, in a, he was into astrology. And they showed how after 120 years, it started repeating. You know, things mm-hmm. that had happened earlier in his life started repeating again, but um, that's another. Okay. So then we have, so, so that's, those are called mahadashas, meaning the, the larger time periods. Now, okay. each so that's like the these, upper level, the most general level of like the years. most general level. 
and and I don't know. I use the analogy in the in the Western system that it's like the chapters of your life. Would you use mm-hmm. that analogy, or do you use some other analogy? Chapters, chapters. Well, I guess chapter could work. Because like if if the life was a book, like if you pick up a biography about like your <laughs> life that's written in retrospect, it's usually divided uh-huh. into you know chapters. Let's say 10, 20 chapters, yes. and you almost kind of have that with a technique like this. If you're only making it through what, let's say like nine signs, if you live a pretty long life, that's like a nine chapter long book. Yeah. Um, You could call it chapters. Okay. I don't want to, I don't want to push any like foreign sort of conceptual (laughs) structure on it, but it's just. The the, the thing is, is, you know, when I look at dashas, I'm also looking at them like, like the cogs of a watch and there's multiple different cogs running at the same time. So sometimes those chapters get messy and there's part of some chapter in the next chapter. Um, right. That's a good point. So, so, so that's my only hesitation with calling it a chapter. Sure. Um, and, and instead I u- I just use the word, it's, it's a qualitative, um, it's a qualitative field of time in your life. Okay. And yeah. Okay. Um, so now, um, each of them is each associated of those, a certain number of years. Yeah. Yeah. So each of those Mahadashas is broken down into what are called, uh, in the North India, they call them Antardashas, which means inner time periods. In mm-hmm. South India, they're called Buktis, which means that which is being enjoyed. And so each of these time periods is proportionally broken down in the same proportion as the major time periods. So Venus is 20, Sun is 6, Moon is 10. You know, Mars is seven. So in that same ratio, each of these planets again plays out within the Mahadasha. So if you're in a, you, and, and it always starts with the same time period. So if we start out in a Jupiter, Jupiter time period, um, then, uh, after that, we get a Jupiter, Saturn time period. And after Jupiter, Saturn, we get a Jupiter, Mercury. And those time periods are proportional to what the um, Vimshotri proportion is. And we can take, and, and so the average astrologer just uses these two levels. Um, you can take it and break it down all the way into six levels so that you're getting time periods that are um, almost like uh, three, four days in length. And okay. it takes a so very- most people just use- most, Most people, people just, just use, use like general two. period and sub period, yeah. but theoretically you could break it down much, much into smaller increments of time. Yeah. And so the, 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 the Maha period is connected. We, in our, in my tradition, we connect it to the sun. So by connecting it to the sun, we say it's, it's this bigger, um, thing in your life that's showing the resources and what the bigger stories are. The, uh, second level dasha is connected to the moon. So it's showing the more the interpersonal relationships that are happening in that time period of life. The next time period down, we connect to uh, Jupiter, which is the decision making, how a person is planning, what they're deciding, how their brain is working. And so each of these dashas, as we break down into smaller components, each one has its own qualitative energy that's uh, influencing a different area of your life and fine-tuning what the results of that time period are. Um, and one of the stories that my guru uh, um, once told, uh, he and, and this is when he was a little kid. So, you know, when he was uh, between ages six and eight is when he had to memorize all these astrological texts. He didn't even know what they meant. He just had to memorize them. 
And then later they taught him what it meant. But he went with his grandfather to um, the train station and his uh, someone in his family left for college. And his grandfather did a few calculations and, 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 and corrected his, rectified his chart to the sixth level based upon the time that the train left. Wow. So there's that level. Um, now, most people use a computer to do these calculations. Uh, mm. His grandfather did it in his head. And a lot of the older Indians still do all these mathematical calculations in their head very easily. You know, mm-hmm. old, these old people doing these like complex mathematical calculations in their head. Um, and then you have these younger people who need computers to do it. So it's a, the, the different worlds. Yeah. Um, I appreciate at now. least in your book that in volume yeah. one, when you deal with dashas and you introduce this technique, you do at least outline how to do the calculations so that a person could learn how to do it if they want to not just be reliant on, on computers. Yeah. And I make all my students learn how to do it. That okay. way they have this deeper understanding of how it works, why it works, how it's unfolding. Mm-hmm. And then they can use the computer afterwards. But um, just to get, you know, how is it that they were thinking and to be able to figure it out themselves. And uh, the more we understand these systems of timing, the better we are able to understand what they mean and how they mean and how to interpret them. Right. Brilliant. Um, yeah, that's probably good advice for all astrologers in general. It's one <laughs> yeah. of the real generational divides that's just happened out of nowhere in the past few decades at no other time in history could you learn astrology and become an astrologer without you know knowing how to calculate the charts on your own to some extent at least exactly um, so there's some interesting discussions to be had but do you mind <laughs> if i share an example yes. chart just to show people visually what this looks sure. like Go for so it. um i just pulled out a random chart and i could pull out a different one if you want but i have the data this is like george lucas's chart who's like a common chart example that I use sometimes in, in my books. And do you prefer the North Indian chart style or the South Indian style? Is this uh, I'm, okay? I'm more I'm more either North Indian or East Indian. What's the East Indian look like? East Indian looks like a tic-tac-toe board. Okay. I don't think I've seen that. I've got yeah. either the North or the South Indian you, one you I can go do. Go ahead go ahead and throw up the the, the North. Okay. Um, Let me. But so here, if we look on the side for those who are looking visually, you can see how um, we have that moon Mercury. And then after that, he goes into moon south node. Then he goes into moon Venus, moon sun. And after moon sun, he changes into Mars. And in this software, it just says Mars, but it would generally be stated as Mars, Mars. And after that, he goes into Mars north node. So we can see that there's the Mahadasha and then the Antardasha, the inner dasha. Right. So he, um, in what nakshatra do you know is he born into? It looks like he has the moon at 18 degrees of Capricorn. And this is used in the Lahiri Ayanamsha. What Ayanamsha do you prefer? Uh, Lahiri is fine. I use one called okay. Chitrapaksha. The Lahiri is a, a standard moving one. And mm. um, uh, Chitrapaksha just uses the most up to date uh, NASA. Um, uh, mathematics to keep the movement of the Ayanamsha as accurate as possible. Okay. Um, I can see if I, they have that built into solar fire. Uh, it's, it's fine. Lahiri is just fine. Okay. So just to, again, describe this for those listening to just the audio version, he, you know, his moon is in mid Capricorn. So it's in a specific nakshatra that is actually ruled by the moon. 
So he mm-hmm. starts out in a moon-ruled uh, dasha period in the first part of his life, but because the moon is already several degrees into that nakshatra, he doesn't live out the entire general period of the moon, but instead he's born part of the way through it. And within that period, that moon dasha that lasts from his birth in 1944 until 1948, he goes through different sub-dasha periods or sub-periods where it's like moon sub. is activated as the general ruler, and then Mercury is the sub-period ruler, then the moon activated as a general ruler, and then the south node activated for a year as the sub-ruler, and so on and so forth, until eventually it switches and Mars becomes activated as the general ruler uh, for a long period of time from 1948 until 1955. So that's a pretty long um, Dasha period when when Mars gets activated. Uh, s- seven years for Mars. Seven years, okay. Yeah. Just in, in terms of, I don't know, other periods that people are, are usually more used to working with in transits that sometimes okay. tend to yeah, be shorter. Much, much longer than a transit period. Yeah. Yeah. So then it goes into a general Mars period for that seven years, and then he goes through First, a Mars Mars subperiod, then Mars North Node, then Mars Jupiter, then Mars Saturn, and so on and so forth until he switches out of that and goes into a North Node general period starting in 1955, and so on and so forth. So it keeps going through different general periods where it's activating one of the planets for like a decade or two, and then subperiods where it's activating the planets for um, like a few years or something like that. Is that more or less accurate, or is there anything else you would say about that in terms of just generally presenting? I think for those that are, I think that's a good way to present it. Okay. Um, So yeah, so this is the basic basis of the calculation, and it means most people that live a relatively long life, you'll go through. If you live a relatively long life, up to 120 years, you'll go through (laughs) all seven of the visible planets plus the North Node and the South Node at some point. As like a general period in your life, yeah. Um, and uh, when we look at this, can, can you want to talk about interpretation at all, or are we still just focusing um, only on? Yeah, yeah, I'm trying to. No, we should move on. I'm yeah. trying to think. Is there yeah. anything else we need to touch on about calculation, or is that pretty much it? I mean, that's how it's calculated, right? That's no pretty other... much. That's pretty much how it's calculated. Okay, brilliant. Then, oh well, I did want to mention one other thing. So, for those yeah. that aren't going to like break out the tables and calculate this by hand, <laughs> most major astrology software programs like Solar Fire will calculate it. There's like a page style. If you open up a chart and then you click Pages and scroll down in the categories to Vedic, they'll have a page design that will calculate the dashas for you. Otherwise, there's plenty of other programs that do. You actually have a freeware program. Uh, for Vedic astrology, that will calculate the dashas for you, right? It'll calculate all the dashas and um, all dashas, it's, every it's, one of them. It's, yes, it's it's one of my uh, guru brothers in in the Vedic astrology world, and uh, his website's vedicastrologer.org uh, slash jh. Okay, j is j is in Jagannath and h is in Hora. Is the name of the software, and it's a free software that can be downloaded and um, calculates. Uh, it calculates probably a few hundred different dasha sequences, but you can pull up and and uh, calculate the vimshotri on this. Okay, brilliant. So that is at, like you said, vedicastrologer.org/jh, and all right. So we've got the calculation down. We now understand the general thing that. It divides the life up into these 
general periods that are ruled by a planet and for the entirety of that general period for a decade or two, and then there's sub-periods that were ruled by a secondary planet for a much shorter duration of time. So now the question is, if we've calculated this and we're looking at our general periods and our sub-periods, how do we interpret it and what does it what does it mean? Mm-hmm. Like what's the starting point here? Um so this the first and, and there's many different rules, but the first rule is just intrinsic nature of the planet. So in a Mercury time period, it's going to be more playful. You're going to be more in touch with the inner child. Uh, you're going to be more creative. There's going to be more writing happening. In a Venus time period, there's going to be more art. So just that intrinsic value of, of the um, planet itself. So and whatever the na- nature, whatever the significations are of that planet, of that those planet. are the types of things that will become awakened in your life at that time? Exactly. Uh, most okay. likely. And, uh, uh, and, and because of this first rule, a Western astrologer, any, anybody really can, um, find their Vimshotri Dasha printed out. And you don't even, you, and, and there is the fine tuning that goes with it, but you can print that out, have it next to you, put it in a calendar, know what Mahadasha Antardasha you're in. And if you're, you're debating, um, should I take off um, this winter and write my next book? Or should I take off the summer and write my next book? And you can look at that sequence and be like, oh, the summertime, I have this Mercury time period coming. I'll wait till then. And it's going to be a more productive writing time period. So that's right. the- or, or if you're like thinking about getting married and you see you're going into like a, a Venus period next spring- Venus, Moon, Jupiter, you know, any of these like benefic, um, harmonious planets would be a great time for a better time for getting married. Exactly. So even, even without knowing anything more, the average person or astrologer can print out these time periods and just begin utilizing them. And I always tell people when they, um, who aren't going to be diving into the, to the whole Vedic system, just print them out, have them on the fridge or, or something of that nature, and just look at your life, look at the, how they correlate to things that happened in the past. And as you understand how they correlated to things in the past, you can start to understand how they're going to correlate to things in the future. Um, right. Because sometimes certain planets, uh, that, and, and so that's the intrinsic uh, nature. Then we bring in uh, the placement and the strength. And those are two different uh, conditions. Right, um, because this is that first rule that you introduced. While it's true, you actually have expressed some concern that sometimes people get too stuck on that, and that's only the starting point, and that you shouldn't overemphasize it. Exactly, and and so the thing is, people who aren't going to dig into the system, I tell them look back. What were the bad time periods in your life? See where they correlate, because Venus in general is a good time period. But if you have a Venus conjunct the North Node and Saturn in the sixth house, your Venus time period might not be that good. And right. so without even knowing that, you can just look at the and, and be like, wow, that was that was a bad time period for me. And then you know when the next Venus comes, it's not going to be the best time period. Or vice versa, Saturn, so many people are afraid of Saturn. But if somebody has Saturn exalted um, in the 10th house, their Saturn period could come and all of a sudden they start a big company and the company does so well. And so they know that that next Saturn time period that comes, they're going to have, it's, it's a, it's a successful time for them. So not even knowing anything, 
just by going back and seeing what was good and not good, they can just begin predicting in, in the future. Sure. Once so, we, so it comes yeah. down to so the, the condition of the planet in the chart really matters, and people shouldn't necessarily get freaked out if they see they're going into a Saturn or a Mars Dasha because ultimately it is going to partially come down to how that planet is situated in the chart. Exactly. Um, and just a little example, I had a, a client who worked for the CIA, had Saturn mm-hmm. and the North Node in the 10th house. And he was, he was, he knew enough about astrology that he was afraid. He's like, Oh my gosh, I'm about to enter this Saturn North node time period. And I mean, the guy, like what he did for a living was, you know, go to foreign countries and like plot these terrible things. And I said, you're going to like, this is going to be a wonderful time period for you. What are you talking about? He got a double raise during that time period, got uplifted to this very high level. So. It also there's there's the nature of the planet, and then there's the nature of what you're doing in your life. Um, right. You know, a monk, a Venus time period might be a terrible situation for them because right. they don't want a relationship. Where somebody who's right. in the you know Mars uh, might be a, a dangerous time period to some person, but somebody who's a soldier or a police officer, it might be their best time period of their life. So there's right. the the nature of the planet in the chart as well as what are you doing with that that planet in your life. And generally, if the planet is well-placed, it means the planet is prominently and positively showing up in your life and thereby going to give, it's going to enhance those beneficial results. If a planet is um, not well-placed and causing suffering in your life, when that planet gets activated, that suffering all of a sudden is getting activated in your life. Hmm. That's brilliant. I mean, that makes a lot of sense just in terms of, I hadn't thought about it that way, but that the person who has like a a challenging planet or let's say a malefic, but it's well situated and prominently placed in the chart might might gravitate sometimes towards utilizing that planet in constructive ways in their career or what have you. So when it gets activated, of course, that might be not just the highest point in their career, but they might be utilizing things that are natural to that planet. Exactly. So, so it ends up enhancing them and, and being a beneficial time period. So we Brilliant. can't just use the intrinsic nature. We have yeah. to use the intrinsic nature with a, uh, a sense of discernment. And, and, and that statement uh, is made basically like right at the top of that chapter. You quote this verse from Parashara that says both of those things basically, right? Do you mind if we, if we read it really quick? You want me to read it or you want to read it? Uh, I did write it out here, but you'll probably read it better than I would, I would suspect. Okay. So if you want to. Um, so uh, the Dasha gives, and, and so this is, this is uh, my translation of, of Parashara. And he says, and this is his first verse when in, in the chapter in interpreting the Dashas. He says, the Dasha gives two particular types of results, that based on the planet's intrinsic nature and that based on the place of residence. Know the results of the dasha to manifest according to the nature of the planet's strength. So now that that brings in this strength element, because we just were talking about intrinsic nature and its place. And so if a planet is well-placed, but weak, the, the, the tradition says it, it'll happen only in, in the person's dreams and, and how that shows up. Let's say Venus is in the 10th house, well-placed but in its debilitation. 
So the person will dream of being a movie star. And in that dasha, they'll maybe watch lots of movies, dreaming of being a movie star, learning lots of facts, but they don't actually become a movie star. So that strength impacts how much that planet is going to manifest or not manifest in the life. And really quickly, I think I interrupted you before we actually introduced uh, house placement because that was Uh the second condition um, in your book that you mark. Um, so maybe we should touch on that really quickly uh-huh. before we continue with the full like enumeration yeah, of different yeah. strength conditions. Yeah. So we have intrinsic nature, then we have its house mm-hmm. placement, and it the house you know every planet is going to be altered by where it's showing up in your life. So where it's showing up, it, it, uh, Mercury in the first house, Mercury in the tenth house, and Mercury in the fifth are are giving totally different results in your life. So right. this house so- placement is is altering. Um, and the dasha is going to activate the results of what that planet is giving. So whatever the house, so so first we're looking at the intrinsic nature of the planet, but then the mm-hmm. second thing is what house is that planet located in? Because it's going to, I think you wrote that the significations of the planet will be channeled through the house that it's in, and therefore the significations of that house will become relevant at that time as well. Exactly. So just as an example, I was using Mercury in the fifth verse tenth. Maybe in the 10th, somebody gets a job at a newspaper if they enter uh, a Mercury time period with Mercury in the 10th, mm-hmm. where if Mercury is in the 5th uh, and that gets activated, the person might get a lot of students, might be teaching at a university. Fifth house is connected to students in the Vedic system. Okay. So, um, so that difference between getting a job with Mercury versus teaching Mercury. Right. So, so it's going to be implemented through the house that the planet's placed in. And then we bring in the strength of, of that planet. Okay. So then this is consideration three is what is the strength or the, or the condition of the planet? Exactly. And when I say condition there, the term used in Sanskrit is avasta, meaning its state. Is it happy? Is it sad? Um, if, if, if that planet was combust, a combust planet in the Vedic system is an angry planet. So if an angry planet gets activated, it's a time period of your life where there's a lot of anger happening, you're upset a lot, there's things not working out, there's a lot of frustration, where a planet that is conjunct a benefic or aspected by a benefic, that's a planet that has a lot of joy. So in a time period where that planet gets activated, there's going to be a lot of happy things happening, there's going to be a lot of joy. In And, and the thing is, whether that job, let's say it's Mercury in the tenth house, they get a job at a at a newspaper. If it's combust the sun, they get a job at a newspaper, but they're completely angry. There's not things aren't working out. There's frustration. Where if that Mercury was conjunct Jupiter in a in a healthy um, relationship there, then they'd get the job at the newspaper and they would love it. They'd be you know fulfilling themselves. There'd be so much joy from the work. So in this way, the uh, strength and condition are are the third thing that we look at. Okay, so this is where it really it doesn't negate the first consideration where the general significations of the planet comes into play, but it really comes down to that question of is that planet auspiciously placed in your chart, or is it the opposite? Is it more like inauspiciously placed? Let's say exactly. And and, and and it's very much sequential. They each build on each other. So we have the intrinsic nature, and that mm-hmm. intrinsic nature is coming out in a certain area. 
And then we look at how is that coming out in that certain area. Sure. And this is a pretty broad topic, obviously, because you spend a good chunk of your book talking about it. But maybe we should talk about what some basic criteria are for determining planetary condition in Vedic astrology. Yeah, as you said, that's a big topic. (laughs) Yeah, right. I'm just like, let's. Uh, you know, just just uh, so we have it's it's you know th- there's uh, certain um, planets give exaltation, debilitation. Um, what's the Western terminology for that? Is that uh, the yeah, same, a planet in its exalt, the sign of its exaltation versus yeah. a planet in the sign of its fall. And then whether it's in a, a sign of a lord that's friendly to it, or a, in a sign that its lord is in, inimical to it. Um, and so this okay. is giving it a certain status. And then there's conjunction or aspect by benefics and conjunction or aspect by malefics. Okay. And then we, we put a lot of emphasis also on, is it in the very beginning of a sign or very end of a sign, or is it strong in the middle of the sign? So um, a planet is like conceptualized as very like young and sort of weak at the beginning and then mature and at its peak in the middle, but like old and, and like dying or something towards the end? Exactly. Just like okay. the human life itself, right? In, and in its capacity to achieve its goals, like a, a child that's six years old can only achieve so much. Mm-hmm. So if it's in its really early degrees, it's it's going to give uh, only a certain amount. Um, often planets in the sidereal first degree, like that one degree of the sign, uh, they often give really wonderful financial results. But they're so immature. That's where we get these rich people that just, you know, like if the smarter of us say, well, if we had that much money, we would do so much good things with it. But they don't because it's just the 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 planet that's giving them the money is immature. Sure, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, So yeah. So that's another one. Another one. So being combust or you know versus being free from the rays of the sun yeah. is another contrast. Um, yeah. Being in a favorable house versus being in an unfavorable house is mm. that's another one, right? Yes. And, and what would we thing, consider so like a favorable, favorable versus unfavorable? Houses, favorable houses depend. For example, mm. Moon in the sixth house is not beneficial, uh, okay. but Saturn in the sixth house is wonderful. Moon in the sixth house, person has digestive issues, food sensitivities. They're, you know, they, they're, they pick things apart in their life. They have a hard time being content. Saturn in the sixth house makes a super hard worker person overcomes any obstacles that's put in front of them. So the, the benefic and the malefics, which houses are good or bad for each of them, um, changes and, the big thing with the Vedic system is there's always something good about everything. Even moon in the sixth house, you know, I just talked about the negative, but on the positive side, it makes an incredible doctor or an incredible lawyer, somebody who's like looking for what's the problem and fixing the problem that moon in the sixth house is great for. So yes. Is there, can we set up at least a general distinction that there's a tendency for like the sixth, eighth, and twelfth to be interpreted more negatively, generally speaking, than like the eleventh or the fifth or yes. the tenth? Uh, six, eight, and and twelve are the toughest house for any planets to be in. Okay. And then the uh, one, five, and nine are the most auspicious places for a house to be. And then second to that is one, four, seven, and ten. 
should write that down. One, five, and nine. And the one, six, five, eight, and, then tw- one, five, and nine is, is the most beneficial for any planet to be in. Now, it might not be beneficial for everything. So there's that variation that, as I said, shows up there. For example, Mars is happy in one, four, seven, and 10. But in four and seven, he causes all kinds of problems in the life. In seven, he causes relationship problems. In the 10th, he causes a lot of fighting in the home. Um, but he still is giving beneficial results in other areas. So, And uh, what's the name for six, eight, eight, and 12? Isn't it like Dishtana houses or is that something else? Dushtana, du means bad, stana means place. So they're the okay. bad places. The bad places. That's, <laughs> it's that's literally exactly, what it means. Yeah. Yeah. That's what they're called in, in Greek and in Hellenistic astrology as well. Uh-huh. Um, okay. So those are some good starting points, though. The last one we didn't mention a planet being in its own sign would be considered mm. auspicious, right? Auspicious. A planet in its own sign is auspicious. And if it's in 147, 14710 in its own sign, it becomes even better than auspicious. It becomes, that's when the planet is in its full, complete power. To be in its own sign in in what we call the Kendra, 14710, that planet gives full results and will impact change on many people in the person's life. Hmm. All right. So these are some great then like starting points of different distinctions you could make for determining if the actual Mm -hmm. condition of the planet in the chart is auspicious and how that's going to manifest regardless or maybe let's say in conjunction with the intrinsic nature of the planet. Yes. All right, brilliant. So, I think that's a good starting point there and then after that um in your book you move on to the topic of yogas and different and, planetary yogas yeah. being activated by the yeah. doshas. Um and just before we move on, um mm-hmm. beginner astrologers who, you know, cuz there's all these rules Sometimes they might think something is good or bad. When it's Dasha comes, then you know whether it's actually good or bad. Yeah. <laughs> right. if, if if there's a doubt, it's just a matter of when that Dasha comes, and it makes it very clear whether that planet is well placed or not. Yeah, and sometimes I mean that's probably a good thing we should talk about, especially towards the end, is just how using some of this stuff in your life and how you you deal with some of that knowledge and. Like good ways to use it versus maybe not healthy ways to mm. to use it and things like that. Yes, sounds good. Yeah. Um. So so the next one, next uh, big thing that we use in interpreting the Vimshotri is uh, what they call yogas in mm. in Sanskrit, and yoga means two things coming together. So this is just the Sanskrit word for conjunctions. Um. So it's some type of conjunction, whether between two planets or um, uh, a planet in a house in a certain way. Uh, so this coming together. And when a planet gets activated, it's, it's conjunction gets activated. So, um, and just as an example, uh, Mercury and Sun conjunct in a sign of Mercury, uh, creates a great scholar. So if it's a Mercury time period or a Sun time period, and a person has this scholarly combination, then when that dasha happens, that is going to get active in the person's life. That combination. Okay. Um, uh, That's let's really see important. It. So, so when yes. a person goes into like a Mercury period, 
if they have the sun and mercury conjunct, then it's also activating that conjunction with the sun at the same time. Exactly. So when a planet gets activated, the conjunction it's in is also getting activated. Okay. So that's really important because then that starts bringing together other pieces of the chart that are working in combination or with unison in unison with any one placement. Exactly. So so as as and 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 all these um different interpretation tools, I've done my best in my book to list them in order of importance. Okay. So that, you know, if if you start looking at the combination and you're not taking in the intrinsic value, the placement and the strength, the interpretation can go wrong. We all of those build on each other. So we're we're taking each of these things into account and and of in order of importance. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you do actually an amazing job of outlining this in your book. So I just have to recommend for anybody, especially newer students who are just getting into this, that you outline it like very clearly and sequentially in the book. Um, and you actually had an interesting discussion about a rule with the when the malefics and the benefics are interacting in the mm. same sign. Yeah, you actually had an interesting like interpretive rule about that. Yes, and so this is a rule that only that is applied in Vimshotri Dasha. So a lot of times, people when there's three or four planets conjunct, people start getting confused. Oh my gosh, how do I interpret this? Right. And so the and uh so the rule goes that the most benefic planet in that conjunction is interacting with the most malefic planet in that conjunction. And then the next most malefic is interacting with the next most benefic. Even if they're farther apart, it's still this malefic benefic interaction. And now this is a rule specific to Vimshotri Dasha. We don't use this outside of Vimshotri Dasha. So, so and when you say yeah. interacting, you mean yes. like like affecting or influencing that it's the malefic that's doing something to the benefic? Yeah. So let's say Jupiter, Venus, Mars, and Saturn were conjunct. Mm -hmm. And um the person entered a Saturn time period. That whole conjunction would not be completely activated, but primarily it'd be the Saturn and Jupiter relationship that would be coming forth. And from the Vedic tradition, Saturn-Jupiter is considered a, um, we call it Brahma Yoga, trying to understand how things work, where things came from. So during that time period, a person gets very inquisitive and wants to research and dig deeper. Where if, if it was, if the, if that combination was just Venus, Mars, and Saturn, and that Saturn got, that time period got activated, then it'd be it with no Jupiter there, then it'd be Saturn Venus that are primarily interacting. And so Saturn Venus is a very um uh nature, religion, um, ecology, plant-based magic kind of combination. And so the person would start digging into that realm and and taking on, exploring and and practicing things of that nature. So okay. like this, we're, we're looking at when we interpret these combinations with multiple planets, how are we seeing how these planets are most impacting each other? Okay. So there's a whole prioritization in terms of which yeah. planetary interactions yeah. would be more prominent? Exactly. And, right. and, and that rule is, is an 80% rule. It works 80% of the time. Okay. <laughs> There's there's always those time periods where there's something else going on and and yeah, sure. 
Um, and the idea of yogas that brings in, I mean, for me, because when I hear yogas, mm -hmm. I think of other more complex yogas where you have like yep. the rulers of houses coming in together into play, and that's where the next rule comes in, right? So the uh, when a planet gets activated, the houses it lords are also getting activated. So for example, if it's a Gemini rising person and Mercury is is their their Vimshotri Dasha of Mercury starts, the first house and the fourth house are becoming very active. And so self-care, home, land, property, things of that nature are getting activated. And um so, so in this way, the houses that the planet lords are are also being awoken and a part of the primary focus of the life during that time period. And as I said, these rules are very much in order that I've placed them. So intrinsic value, most important Then you know, just like, so this is getting down to um, after we see the combinations, the, the conjunctions, then we're getting into the house lordships and seeing these areas of life that are getting primarily brought into the person's sphere. Sure. And this is, again, taking it back to that idea of what is the condition of the planet in the chart and how is it placed, and mm -hmm. that this sort of naturally comes with that because that's part of its natural condition in the chart of what, what houses does it rule? Exactly. And just a, a way that that's used, um, let's say somebody wants to know when they're going to get married. And uh, generally, I would look for the sub-period of Venus, Moon, or Jupiter these benefits that have a potential to bring relationship in. But I would also look at the um, Dasha of the Lord of the Seventh House. So even if the Lord of the Seventh House is Mars, that Mars sub-period could bring marriage. Okay. If the transits are supporting that. Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because it is it becomes Mars even though it doesn't have that natural affinity with relationships. If it's really in the Seventh House, it becomes uh, one of the primary uh, planets that signifies that topic in the chart. Exactly. Brilliant. So you would look for the dasha in which Mars is activated in some instances as a potential time window when that could occur. Exactly. Okay. Um, and then you had some other. There's actually a lot of considerations in the house rulership condition. One that was interesting yes. is you almost had like a, a derived houses type of consideration there as well. Or I'm not sure how you would frame it. How say that. One, it? Say that again. It was almost like a derived houses type thing of looking at like houses relative to the planet that was activated. If I was understanding that correctly, oh, th that's getting into a complex. Too much. If, okay, if, yeah, 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 maybe yeah, we should that, leave that. That one's a little too complex. <laughs> All right, so we, people can save that yeah. for the book. Um, there's only two last ones. One of them was the relationship between the general period lord and the mm. sub period lord. Yeah. So, so there's two two elements to to looking at the the. Maha Lord and the Sub Lord. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first is that let's say somebody is, is running um, Jupiter Saturn. Um, that time period is as if it's a conjunction between those two planets. Um, okay. So it's treated the relationship between like a general period Lord and the sub period Lord is treated as you interpret it as if it's a conjunction between those two. As if it's a conjunction. Exactly. Okay. So okay. if you're in a Moon-Jupiter time period, this is considered a really beneficial conjunction. We can, in, we can assume that there's going to be more beneficial things during that time period, as long as 
all those other things we mentioned are supporting it. Um, mm-hmm. and, and as I said, it, it, there's, there's order of importance here. So, um, and in the same way, if it's, uh, for example, moon north node time period is the highest likelihood of anxiety. Mm. Moon Saturn or Saturn moon, highest likelihood of depression. Sure. Um, just because those are, you know, moon Saturn are more likely to have a depressed outlook on life. So that time period is more likely to deal with, you know, the person is going to experience some depression during that time period where um, uh, that moon uh, Rahu conjunction is more likely to produce anxiety. Even if they're not conjunct in the chart, that time period will bring a more anxious uh, situations into the life. So that's one level of, of the, the Maha Lord to the uh, sub Lord. Um, the other is something that we call Bhava Sambanda. It means the planetary relationship. And we have these, uh, this understanding that, um, if planets are conjunct, they're most likely it's a beneficial, you know, they're already a combination that's working together. So it's just activating that. Now, if mm-hmm. a planet is, let's say, um, it's a, it's a, that moon, uh, Rahu time period. If moon is in the first house and Rahu, the North node is in the second. One is two, the other is 12. So that's a two 12 relationship. And okay. the two 12 relationship is considered to be a more friction creating, um, situation. Now, if the moon was in the first and Rahu was in the third, that would mean they have a three 11 relationship. Because one is third from, one is 11 from, and it can be reversed. Right. Either way they are, if one is, if a planet is third from the other planet, the other planet is 11th. And so 311 and- is a neutral relationship where the two planets are getting something from each other. Okay. And are you, is that almost like in the West, we have derived houses so that the problem with those would be one of them's in like a 12th house, which is almost like an inimical relationship versus the other is in an almost like an 11th house, like friendly relationship. Is that sort of how that it works conceptually or is it just different? Not necessarily I, I, that. I don't know the Western technique, so I okay. can't say exactly, but it sounds similar. Sure. Yeah. I guess I just was wondering if yeah. you were directly associating like enemies with the 12th from a planet versus friends with the 11th from a planet or what have you. Yeah. So um, planets that are trying each other or um, square each other, I think is the right words. I don't think square. We call it Kendra. So if it's one, four, seven, ten from the other planet or trine, they work together really well. And so even if the planets aren't friendly, they still will give some good results where if they're in a six, eight relationship or these more negative house relationships from each other, then they're going to be bringing more problems. So for example, I had a client, he had a, it was, it was, he had sun, it was a sun Mercury time period. He thought it was going to be really good. And, but they were in a six, eight relationship and he had all kinds of legal issues during that time period because of that relationship, the two planets had between each other. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that, that though is conceptualized as different from the concept of aspect because you use the special aspects that the planets have, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Is that true? The where it's like each planet has, especially the outer planets, have two specific aspects that they make, as well as the conjunction and the opposition. 
Um, yes, and you know, talking about aspects that brings a whole. We didn't talk about aspects in this, but right. the planet's aspects also become more powerful during its time period. Okay. So if Jupiter is aspecting the Moon during Jupiter during Jupiter's time period, the aspect on the Moon becomes stronger and more powerful. Where if Saturn is aspecting the Moon during Saturn's time period, that aspect is going to be activated and and become more strong. Right. So it's really just like every uh, thing associated with the natal condition and placement of a planet in a birth chart is becoming awakened when it becomes activated as a dot through the Dasha technique. Exactly. Brilliant. That makes sense. Um, all right. So the last, very last thing, which is at the very bottom of your list, which is and, so interesting you know, because this. I'll just, I'll just add yeah. one thing onto that. Sure. Um, you know, in the beginning, I mentioned that there's multiple different Dashas. Mm-hmm. And in that multiple dashas, there we are activating everything, but the mula dasha that um, Varaha Mahira used versus the Vimshotri that we see show up in Parashara. Mm-hmm. Um, in the mula dasha, we would look if if a planet is is afflicting, if a malefic is afflicting a planet, we see the the tough time periods as the time periods of the malefics where in the vimshotri dasha we don't the, the malefics might not be a negative time period even if they're afflicting a benefic but the benefic that's afflicted that's actually more the time period of suffering so the vimshotri is activating everything that you experience of yourself not mm. what is outside being put on you they get the slight difference so of that. Maybe more subjective versus like objective experience. Exactly. Okay. So and it's activating that's... everything subjective about the planet. And maybe that's a byproduct of the fact that we're starting from the moon and that's the exactly. primary starting point for the entire technique is the nakshatra the moon is in. Exactly. Where the muladasha starts from the strongest uh, kendra, one, four, seven, or 10. And so there okay. it's irrelevant of the moon. And it's much more a practical, objective approach to timing. Hence, while understanding how the dashas are calculated impacts how we interpret them. Brilliant. All right, that's really good information to know. Yeah. Um, and then at this, at the very end of all of this, or towards yeah. the end at least, you introduce one of the final pieces, which is transits, mm. which yes. is so interesting because that's where the ancient traditions were so different than, like in the modern West, transits is. Like the primary timing technique, and it's the one that people often look to first. But in these approaches of the ancient timing systems, both in the Greek and the Indian traditions, transits are always the last thing you look at because you don't know which planets are going to be activated by transit until you know what the dashas are. Exactly. And so the dashas uh, are there, and there's a few different ways we use the transits with the dashas. Um, one of them is the the transits of the active dasha lord become more powerful transits. You know, Mercury or Venus are these faster moving planets, and they don't have that same weight that Jupiter and Saturn in the North Node often have. Mm-hmm. Yet, in the dasha of Mercury, all of a sudden, Mercury becomes this very strong impact on wherever it's moving in the sky. So that's one way that we integrate the the dashas and the transits. Then for predictive purposes, um, as I mentioned before, the uh, if I was going to predict when somebody was going to get married, I might look at Venus 
subdasha, or I might look at the subdasha of the planet ruling the seventh, even if it's Mars. And but then I have to pick: is it going to be Venus or is it going to be Mars? And so with that, then I look at the transits in those two time periods. I wouldn't even if the transit supported marriage, but the time period running was the eighth house. I wouldn't、mm. predict that that transit would give the result of marriage. So it becomes okay, so for this, example. Yeah,、uh, let me translate that for a second. So if like something like Jupiter was going through the seventh house,、mm-hmm. but the person wasn't was in like an eighth house dasha period, you would not predict marriage because that transit through the seventh is not going to be as active if it's not activated as a dasha. Exactly. Okay. The, the dasha literally blocks that transit from giving its its full fruit. Okay, I like that that terminology blocks because it's like the potential is there because the planet's going through the seventh house. So you'd almost otherwise expect it, but if it's not activated as a dasha lord at that time, it's not really turned on, or it's not there's some sort of blockage that's stopping the potential manifestation of that transit. It's it's like the transit of Jupiter through the seventh would you'd meet some really awesome. Partner, but because the eighth house is active, you're dealing with some debts and loans, and the debt collector's coming, and that awesome partner says, "I don't want to marry this person." Right. Where if it was running the the seventh house time period, and Jupiter was transiting that time period, or it was running Venus, a planet that intrinsically supports relationship, then all of a sudden there's all this extra love energy, and it doesn't even matter what else is going on because. The the love is being supported while that transit is 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 happening. Sure. So it goes back to that whole thing you mentioned at the beginning of like potential versus like something that's almost just imagined. And you gave an analogy at the very beginning of somebody like dreaming of success during that time but not actually achieving it. Exactly. Though、okay. the dasha and the transits, they bring the potential is all of a sudden in the life. Jupiter through the seventh house, there's going to be this potential person in your life.、Mm. Whether it turns into something more than a potential, that's a whole nother story.、Uh, okay, interesting. So, 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 I mean, so that's the really thing an is, important distinction. Yeah, it's it's an important distinction whether it's there or it's just a dream, because the、mm. transits are always bringing something. It doesn't mean that it, it fructifies into its its completeness. And okay, bringing it to another zone of health, for example.、Um, Saturn.、Uh, so we use a tenth house aspect from Saturn. So I had a client today has Saturn about to. Saturn is transiting the seventh, and the North Node is about to enter the fourth. And and so、um, I, I looked, and she's in a good dasha, but there's these two malefics hitting the fourth. If she was in a negative dasha, I could guarantee that there'd be some breast cancer type situations. And and but because she was in a good dasha, that dasha is protecting her. It's making her in the right place, right time, right things happening. So the dasha can protect from the transits or enhance. If she was in a in a negative dasha and those transits were happening, guaranteed we would have a situation where there was something going on in the chest region. Right, because sometimes there's the situation of a person that falls into trouble or gets sick, but then also. Has a recovery or is able to come out of simple out of recovery,、that. exactly. Sure.、Um, okay, brilliant. And you mentioned Saturn's aspect to the tenth. What are the two?、Yeah. Saturn also always has its full power or full aspect on the tenth. And what's the other sign that it aspects? The, the, the third, seventh, and tenth. 
Okay, third, seventh, and tenth signs relative to the sign that it's in? Relative to Saturn's whole sign aspect. Right. Yeah. Okay. Just wanted to mention that really briefly because that's another um, different concept in terms of how aspects work that that people want to explore at more point. And I, at some point, mm-hmm. I know you go into that in your book. Yes. All right. Brilliant. Um, well, that is, and that's so. That's not obviously. That's not other uh, everything. We could go into other things, but in a nutshell, that's kind that's, of like that's the, a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah. That's the basic approach to interpreting dashas. Um, in terms of that, so I have just like a few other miscellaneous questions. One of them, several, several of them, yeah. you've already mentioned or answered. Um, one of them is: Can you use dashas and buktis to rectify a chart? Um, and you already used a story of that, where you noted how that person who was an astrologer he was like dropping off his grandson at the train, and because of when the train departed, he realized that that meant. Um, the time of the birth was actually a little different because exactly. the certain subperiod was starting at that time. So you can see, because of how the technique, you know, has very def- definitive periods where one period starts and another stops, which can sometimes be very dramatic in their differences. How you could use this as a rectification technique? So um, a lot of astrologers in the West, Vedic astrologers in the West, use the dasha as their primary rectification technique. Okay. Um, in my tradition, our primary rectific- rectification technique is is the divisional charts. Okay. Um, and so we primarily rely on the divisional charts because in the divisional charts, um, the person is an engineer or they're not. The person is a psychologist or they're not. You know, there's a lot of really hard kind of um, things that we use to rectify, and they often change in three four minutes. So um, then we secondarily, in my tradition, use the dasha sequence and primarily much more for um, big rectification. Let's say we're not sure exactly the hour somebody's born. And so their ascendant could be a little this way or a little that way. And which, you know, a lot of times people from South America or Russia, we have a very generalized time. And in those charts, we can see that they entered um, a certain time period. And if that time, that planet is either ruling the seventh or ruling the eighth. And so it makes it really clear when they entered that time period, did the eighth house type situation get activated or did seventh house type situations get activated? So in this bigger scale of rectification, we, we utilize that. And some people use the, the smaller Dasha, um, but the thing is, you can sometimes go wrong with with those dashas because there's multiple things that could have activated it. So we use it as a secondary rectification, not as a primary. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, another question is, what what can a person do to mitigate things if they're going into a challenging dasha period? Yeah. So um, so there's a few things, um, and and the first is the most the, the first to bring up is the most practical. And that means it's always best to just align with the planets. You know, the, uh, that client who was in the CIA, what he was doing aligned with Saturn and Rahu. So he didn't even need to do anything. Um, person is going into a Mars time period. Uh, how can they bring Mars into their life? Maybe they need to do more cooking. Maybe, you know, something so that maybe they need to join some martial arts and get the martial arts in their life. Something that brings that planet in in a healthy way. Um, sure. 
Parashara uh, discusses um, if the planets have a negative relationship, like they are 6-8 or 2-12 from each other, or it is lording the 8th house or lording the 12th house. Uh, he, there's a whole chapter in Brahat Parashahora Shastra that he gives for each of these Dasha sequences. So for Jupiter, Saturn, Jupiter, Mercury, Jupiter, you know, if any of them are in a negative situation and, uh, and I'll just, um, let's see, I have right here, um, Parashara open, um, because we're, I knew we'd be talking about this topic and, uh, he gives results of the Antardasha of Mercury in the Mahadasha of Jupiter. And it lists um, in the, uh, let's see, actually easier to find right here, the Mahadasha of Jupiter, Antardasha of Saturn. He says that if, if there is this negative relationship or negative house lordship, he says in order to mitigate the evil effects of the afflictions, um, chant the Vishnu Sahasranam, which is a particular prayer, and donation of a black cow or female buffalo be given in charity with the blessings of the supreme Saturn. Um, so he gives this whole list of things to donate and prayers to, to, to give. And uh, in the tradition that I study in, we get, we, we use that as a stepping stone, not as a, um, not as a dogmatic situation, you know, because mm-hmm. it's saying the Vishnu Sahasranam, that's letting us know that this Jupiter uh, Saturn conjunction has this energy of Vishnu and that Vishnu and, and what does Vishnu do? Vishnu is a purifying energy. So we make sure that the remedies being done are purifying remedies and something. So in that way, we construct the, the remedies um, for what's uh, going on. Uh, based on these indications that Parashara has given. Okay. And is this or, also... Yeah. Go ahead. Or, or we integrate that planet in a healthy way into our life. So it's the, sure. the practical, and if we don't want to change to you know do what that planet wants, there's other ways to, to work with that planet. Right. I mean, it reminds me of a little bit of what you mentioned earlier in like Ayurveda, where sometimes... Um, you know, if a person has a certain propensity for a certain um, type or a certain um, medical type, that you'll do offsetting things in order to like counteract and balance things out, and that the idea is to move away from extremes because it's when you go to extremes that's when the body gets out of balance. But instead, you're trying to find balance in some way in the life. Exactly. Um, then that that just made me think of a and. So there's a concept that this energy has to be in the life. It it has to be there in some way. And so if we don't bring it in, then uh, like today, for example, I had a woman who she she had a afflicted Venus conjunct the sun. And so I had her do a donation to um, women who are trapped and needing self-empowerment. So I had self-empowerment sun women, Venus, and it was in the 12th house. So there's this trapped energy. So women who are maybe trafficked or abused or something where they're trapped, some donating to an organization that's helping liberate them and and empower them. So that energy of this afflicted Venus with the sun is in her life, but it's in her life as a donation. It's not in her life as something she's suffering. 
Sure. So that's the whole philosophy underlying remedial measures or, or mitigating things in Vedic in Indian astrology that mm. the energy is going to manifest somehow. So you might as well find a way to do that actively yourself by doing something that matches the symbolism of the placement that's being activated in your chart. And if you do that, then you may have some con more control over it than versus just letting it happen to you in a way that might be not um, as personally like what you might want subjectively versus something else. Exactly. So, so sure. these are ways that we work with dealing with the uh, negative situations that the um, uh, planets bring up. And as I mentioned in the beginning, how people can just print out these, the Vimshotri Dasha, put it on the fridge and just pay attention. In mm. that paying attention, if they're about to enter a Mercury time period, they can donate to kids' education. If they're about to enter a Venus time period, they can donate to just a women's shelter. And it can be, you know, it's it's good to be donating no matter what to to positive things in society. And it's a nice way to guide that donation in a way that's going to make your life more pleasant. Right. Saturn might be like an old folks home or something like that. Old folks home, homeless center, the poor. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, um, so that brings up a related question, which yeah. is how much is predetermined versus how much room uh, is there for free will when it comes to techniques like this? Yeah. So, um, so it's, it's interesting, you know, there's, there's a, a few different ways to talk about free will and, and predetermined. Um, and, uh, the, the first place I often start with that is even in us, we have this little kid. We have the, the, you know, some people have a bully that lives inside. Some people have this angry part that lives inside. So we're, we're filled with all these different parts of ourself. So when people start talking about free will, it's like, which part of yours free will? You know, mm -hmm. it's, and, and we have different time periods in our life where these different parts of ourself are more in charge. And even throughout the day, there's different parts of ourself that are in charge. So when we break, when we talk about free will, um, you know, who is it that has that free will? And in, in the Indian yoga tradition, uh, the, so much is about cultivating the um, self-mastery because uh, how often is, is this lower, less mature part of ourself getting in the way of our life and disturbing our relationship or disturbing other parts of our life that we wish wasn't happening. So free will in and of itself um, is a, a big discussion of how that plays in. Um, when we look at it in the context of the dasha, uh, the dasha is showing the qualitative nature of time. And if, if you and me were going to go and, uh, camping in Alaska in the wintertime, we would want to bring a certain quality of clothing and gear with us. If we were going to go swimming in Cancun, we wouldn't want to bring the same gears as if we were going camping in Alaska. So when we look at the dasha, the um, whether we're going to Cancun or Alaska is less in our control. It's there's this certain situation that's coming. There's a certain qualitative element that's unfolding, and that it's it's there. And when we bring up free will, we at some point chose it. You know, our soul chose that this point was going to come at this particular time. So. 
uh, it is this deeper I that is quite happy that this is coming. Now, whether these little parts of ourselves enjoy or not enjoy, that's another story. Um, but what we can control is, do we have the equipment that we need to be in Alaska? Or do we have what we need to have fun in Cancun? So um, in this way, uh, we can control how we are uh, working with the time period. And being that we have a map, it gives us a better control. Um, just as an example, sometimes I mentioned the, the moon Rahu time period being a, an anxious time period. Sometimes people will go on medications during that time period. And then when that time period's done, they're, they're still on the medications because they don't even realize that they're not anxious anymore. The medication mm -hmm. itself is making them anxious. Knowing that that time that, you know, sometimes I say, Hey, I get that you're anxious now. After next, you know, after July, that's going to calm down. Let's do this mantra or, or remedy now and just know that that's going to, to go away. And so it gives us knowing the terrain gives us this ability to, um, have more control over what we're doing, know what's unfolding and, and work with it better. Did that, that answer the? Yeah. Yeah. I think that was a great answer, especially within the context of your earlier, how you set up this entire discussion of talking about, you know, durations, different durations of time having different qualitative properties. And the idea that you're going to experience, once you calculate it, is certain qualities during certain periods of time, but that there may be some degree of negotiability in terms of, and that's where the remediation measures and other things come through, where you can at least attempt, even if you're not fully successful, to. Uh, sort of choose deliberately one manifestation of that quality of time versus another. Exactly. Um, so, and one last subnote to that, since it's a question that would naturally come up, is how does the underlying, since this is Indian astrology and it's coming from a context of the context of Hinduism, how do concepts like karma and reincarnation play into this? Um, I mean, you mentioned briefly something about the soul choosing the life theoretically. But how overt is that sort of philosophy in the actual practical astrology versus are you really just focused primarily on figuring out what's happening in this life and that other stuff is like sort of more background philosophy? Um, it could be either depending on the astrologer. Okay. Uh, I myself like to focus on the present and mm -hmm. prepping for what's to come. Um, but those same combinations can all be interpreted as literally what you were doing in your last life that created that situation. There is nothing in the chart from the Vedic perspective that isn't indicating something that you did last life. Okay, so all of the the birth chart itself is a combination of indications for this life that, like conceptually, are um, the results in some sense of past life karmas. Um, so one of the beginning things in, in the Vedic astrology world that most mm. teachers start with are the certain rules of karma and the, the, the doctrine of karma and what's fixed karma and what's changeable karma and what's, you know, what's the reserve of karma? How, how, how hard is it going to be to change certain karmas? So when we look at the chart, everything is kind of in that, um, that frame of reference. And when we talk about free will and, and, uh, not free, uh, free will and, um, destiny, you know, or karma, free will and, and karma, 
uh, certain combinations are what they call fixed karma. It means that no matter what you do, that's going to happen. And as an, and for disease, two malefics aspecting a house and the negative dasha, it's a fixed karma that there's going to be a disease during that time. Two malefics aspecting a house, it's a beneficial dasha. That's a, um, unfixed karma. It's possible that there could be disease, but it's not guaranteed. And we do a few remedial measures and there won't be any disease. Similar with marriage. If there's no transit happening, no dasha happening to bring marriage, it doesn't matter what we do. You know, that we're not going to be able to bring marriage during that time period. If we have one of them and we do a, a remedial measure, we might be able to bring uh, a relationship into that time period. So in that way, there's the whole Vedic system is built around, it, it's built around, I could even say it's built around, but it is the laws of karma, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think that does make a lot of sense, especially in the sense of thinking about karma as like a a reaction to something from from the past. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, brilliant. Well, this was really good. I'm really glad we got had a chance to have this discussion. Thank you so much. Um, yes. This is amazing. This is all largely based on the chapter of dashas in your book, which goes into much much more detail. Where can people learn more information about this, though? Um, about the dasha or or uh, about the dashas, but also about Vedic astrology in general. I mean, I just I have to plug yeah. your book, which yes. uh, Austin Austin's been raving about for a few years, but now I I fully understand why. So it's titled, yes. and you can find it on Amazon. It's titled "Science of Light: An Introduction to Vedic Astrology." Um, so I teach I teach a, a year long in uh, my first year is uh, a year long. It's about ten months long. And it starts this year. It starts the end of March and goes till uh, Thanksgiving time period, um, and that's year one. And at the end of that, people are fully reading a Vedic chart, and even somebody like Austin, who is this incredible astrologer in so many different systems, he put everything aside and completely read a chart with no other rules except the Vedic rules. So, I mean, incredible versatility there, in, incredible mind. Uh, but so I, I work um, on ensuring that people can read the chart. That way, when we go in, if, if people choose to do a second year, everything is being laid on and, and they're reading charts in the Vedic system and, and utilizing that. And uh, the website to learn more about that is scienceoflight.net. Okay. And that's your primary, because you've got a few different websites, but that's the primary one for your courses? For the courses, it's scienceoflight.net. For readings, I don't even want to give that one because I'm booked out enough that I don't want more sure. clients. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, um. And uh, and I'm from a tradition, and so I have multiple guru brothers and my guru uh, himself. Uh, some people try and jump right to, to to my guru, and they often walk away completely confused. Uh, because you know he's teaching a very high level of of Vedic astrology, um, mm. uh, but those who study with me, it's not they're they're entering a whole tradition. So once they learn the material, there's also various guru brothers, guru sisters, you know, everybody teaching in, in the same lineage that's sharing certain concepts and uh, that that lineage is a if if somebody is going to learn Vedic astrology. To, to come in with a lineage uh, 
of tradition that's coming from the textual source and gurus and and people that hold um, various knowledge um, uh, bases and you know I can't I can't just do anything I want. I'm held to account by my guru brothers and guru. And in that way, all of us are held to account accordingly. And so it creates a very, um, uh, it creates a lot of integrity in the knowledge, how it's shared and, and, uh, how we work with it. So yeah, that entire idea of lineage and the, the community and the connections surrounding it, uh, and the ongoing nature of it is, is just so important. And it's so, Interesting to see that, um, you know, in a much broader sense in the Indian tradition and, and as something they are part of. Mm. Um, brilliant. All right. Well, uh, thanks a lot for joining me tonight. Is there any yes. like final things we should uh, uh, end off end with, or are we are we pretty uh, much good? I want to make sure if there was anything yeah, you meant to say well, that you if it, did. Let's but let's see. To, to, to end, I think I'll just come back to time okay. and and uh, the the. Time really is the only thing that we can fully depend on. You know, there's nothing, everything is going to change except the fact that everything is, you know, that we can depend that everything is going to change. Mm -hmm. And in that way, time is a reality. It's a divinity. It's something that um, instead of coming from a place of saying, oh, I don't believe in time or, oh, this, this, uh, I don't, I'm not exactly sure where that concept comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, but to, to really approach time with respect and, and, uh, this thing that is manifesting reality and that as astrologers, we have been invested in being able to read time and how time is manifesting reality. And it's just a deep meditation and deep respect for, for that, uh, divine play of time itself. Yeah. I love that. That's that's brilliant and that really helps to wind out this episode which is sort of a companion piece to the one I just did which was on the quote unquote time lord techniques which in Greek were said to be the techniques for the division of the times or for dividing the times up. Mm. Um and I think so thank you for helping me to complete this by not just showing sort of a western system for doing this but showing this other approach to doing it, which has this this very long lineage, and where people like yourself have been using techniques like this for for many centuries, or, or in your case, many decades, and therefore have so much more experience that there's a lot that Western astrologers have to learn from them, both in studying Indian astrology unto itself as something that's valuable and worth studying, but also in some instances there might be ways that things that you're doing could. Um, enhance things that Western astrologers should be doing, but just aren't at this point in time. Um, so thanks for helping me to to explore that today. Thanks for having me on here, Chris. All right, brilliant. Well, thanks everybody for watching or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Thanks to all the patrons who supported us. You can find out more information about the show at theastrologypodcast.com. Uh, so thanks for watching, and we'll see you again next time.